0: Welcome, everyone, to the Progress City Radio Hour. My name is Jeff Crawford. I'm here in this wonderful town hall. It's another town hall episode with my brother, Michael. Michael, how are you doing today? I'm doing fantastic today. Uh, it, it's it been quite a long time, it feels like, since we've been in the town hall. I know, we've had little bits of interviews, but not, you know, not a full trip over here. It feels kind of like the... Uh, you know when you go over to across the street to independence hall at knots very Farm, you know <laughs> it's a little dusty but but stately over here and I, absolutely I here. it's time to push the button and get the show going yeah these episodes are always some of my favorites because we get to talk to people about so many different things and what an era what a person we have to talk to today michael Uh, She has been on our list for a long time, and it's a she, uh, which doesn't happen very much. Uh, Who are we talking to today? Well, I'm really, really excited for this interview.
1: This is somebody that I've wanted to talk to, as you say, for a long, long time, even going well back before we revived the podcast. uh, This is somebody that I've wanted to talk to so badly. And we are speaking today with Peggy Ferris. Peggy Ferris of Walt Disney Imagineering, who had an amazing 50-year career with the company, beginning with those storybook land canal boats, which we know and love, and going through everything from Epcot to Paris, all sorts of things. She has just an amazing story, and she's so wonderful to talk to. So this was really exciting.
0: Great. Yeah, I'm excited to hear it. Uh, You talked with Peggy a little bit ago, and I can't wait to share it with you all. Let's get right to it. Let's hear uh, Michael talking to Peggy Ferris.
1: Today, I'm really happy to welcome someone to the show who I've wanted to speak to for a long time. Peggy Ferris. Peggy, welcome to the show. Thank you. We're really glad to have you. Uh, like a lot of people we talk to, you're a California native. You grew up in the shadow of Disneyland. I just wondered, what are, what are some of your fondest early memories of the park?
2: Well, um, I, I you know, I lived in Anaheim, and my mother used to take us out of school on my birthday in April, and we would always go spend the day at Disneyland. Um, so that was that, you know, that was so much fun. I mean, I have very fond memories of running around Tom Sawyer Island with my brother on a rainy birthday. And it was so cool to have it so close. We were probably six miles away. And in the summertime, my dad would take us up onto the roof of our house and we could watch the fireworks from a distance. And then he had been in the Navy. And so he, I think, delighted in showing us the constellations and, you know, while we were up there on the roof, it was, it was the perfect vantage point for both. But I actually have to admit that as a kid, I didn't, I was so focused on the experiences that I never really looked at the people who were providing those experiences and, Uh, And so it came as a real surprise to me when um, in the summer of um, after graduating from high school, I was rejected by Cal State uh, or UC Santa Barbara, actually, and realized that I'd be going to college locally, at least for two years. and And then I could transfer. And a good friend of mine said, well, as long as you're going to be local, why don't you go down to Disneyland and see if you can get a job? Uh, she'd been working there all summer and said, you know, this is really fun. And so I did. And um, and the next thing I knew, I found myself wearing an eyelet pinafore and um, guiding guests through the mouth of Monstro the Whale on the Storybook Land attraction. And I loved it.
1: That's great. Well, the canal boats are really one of those special Disneyland experiences. I think they're, uh, it's, it's a really special, special thing.
2: It was, you know, it's when you think about this isn't this is something you have to groom. You know, those little trees they continue to grow, and and all of those beautiful little models are are exposed to the weather in a way that things aren't if they're in a large. Building, right. So um, it really, and I remember, you know, growing up, I was a card carrying member of the Mickey Mouse Club. And we used to get the Mickey Mouse Club magazine. And I still, I came across it recently. One of the articles was of, I think it was Fred Gerger and some other model makers who were working on the little buildings that would actually go into storybook land. And, you know, at the time I read it, I had no idea that I'd have such a close relationship with the attraction, but it was, it was beautiful. And I also loved the fact that you could just be with a group of guests, you know, 10 people for about, I think about 10 minutes as you drift along the canal and you're, it, you're having this very personal opportunity to to share this experience with them. And, and I really, I loved it.
1: Well, you joined, uh, it was summer of 66, is that correct? Well, I
2: actually started in the fall of 65. Oh, okay. And, and, um, and I was casual temporary. So that meant I worked Friday night and Saturday night, 8 to midnight, and noon to 4 on Sunday. And um, and I did that from end of September through February. And then Ron Dominguez, who was the assistant director of operations, called me to his office and said that they were offering permanent to- part-time positions to cast members. And if I was interested, then I would become, there were three classifications. The A classification was guaranteed 40 hours a week. And then bees, I think, had somewhere between 20 and 30 hours a week or something like that. And then and then those of us who were, you know, happy to work maybe 12 hours.
1: <laughs> right. Right.
2: <laughs> it was perfect because I was going to school. So I really couldn't, I wasn't looking for full time or even very, very much part-time. But I love. I love going in every weekend and working Christmas and holidays and summers. And, and, but I remember sitting across from Ron Dominguez saying, this sounds great, but, you know, I probably won't be here that long <laughs> 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 because I'm <laughs> planning to, you know, to probably transfer in a couple of years. And so little did I know I would be there 50 years more. <laughs> right and ron had a similar story so you know that was that was something that he shared with me uh just a couple of years ago as we laughed about how little you know about what the future holds
1: well he has a an especially unique tie to the park i would think just considering you know, his family, (laughs) his family plot, you know.
2: Exactly. I mean, the operations building when I was first working there was Ron's family home. (laughs) So it was, you know, it was certainly he, he um, had a really unique relationship with the place and, um, and that was, that was very cool.
1: Yeah, very, Uh, it would make coming to the office very, feel very (laughs) homey, I would imagine, (laughs) (laughs)
2: exactly Well,
1: because of the time you came in uh, you overlapped slightly with the time when Walt was still alive I just wondered what it was like you know this was before the company branched out into Florida and all these other places uh, what it was like working at the park when he was still around
2: well you know again I'll go back to my childhood because I grew up watching Disney films one of my first memories is of my of watching Cinderella in a drive-in theater with my parents and, you know, just that gorgeous animation filling the screen and, you know, pumpkins and fairy godmothers and, you know, charming mice. I just, I loved it. So I grew up with Disney and we would, we were members of the Mickey Mouse Club, my younger brother and me. And we would watch as a family, we would watch Walt Disney on Sunday nights. And, you know, so I felt that I knew him, I felt like, you know, like he was my grandfather. I just, I had that really strong sense of, um, you know, what what amazingly good things Walt Disney was bringing to us every week and opening our eyes to looking at nature, thinking about, well, what if you could have a three-stage rocket that would take you around the moon? I mean, you know, and then all the great uh, live action things, the Zorro and El fego Baca and I, Mike Fink and Tom Sawyer and just all of that was yeah. so Twenty Thousand like, So you know I was steeped in it and and felt a really personal connection to Walt Disney the man and and all the wonderful characters that he brought to us. So um, I, you know I never ran into him in the park that I know of, but um, but I had been. I'd been working on storybook land and, and then the assistant supervisor of the area was interested in asking me out, but that was forbidden. Uh. And he did have something like 240 young women in his area, <laughs> poor guy, <laughs> that he was forbidden to date. So, he arranged to transfer for me over to the Matterhorn. And... Honestly, I loved Storybook Land so much, this was not an easy transfer. And the Matterhorn was so fast-paced. And you could, if you weren't uh, at the top of your game, then you might dispatch a sled filled with Cub Scouts. And then if you didn't hold up the the sled full of halfbacks who were here for the Rose Bowl, they would eventually... Enter a zone that would trigger all the brakes in the mountain to launch, and all the all the sleds on both tracks would stop, and a team would have to go up and release each sled one by one. Oh, okay. I was terrified that the eye would be the cause of of adding another thirty minutes to people's wait, and uh, but then I I got over it. Um, and and the foreman of the Matterhorn, a fellow named Chuck Abbott, he, he ran such a tight ship um, and everyone respected him so much. And one day he said to me, you know, there's this program, Disneyland Ambassador, and I think maybe you should look into it. You might enjoy it and you seem to like engaging with guests. And so I looked into it and um, I, it was a very new program they'd had. Julie Reams was the first ambassador for Disneyland's Tencennial, and then uh, Connie Swanson Lane became the second ambassador. So I was. This was the third year of the program, so it was brand new, and I ended up among the five finalists. And they took us to the studio. Card Walker interviewed each of us one by one in his office, and I stumbled through my interview. <laughs> 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 awkwardly <laughs> but then they took us to lunch in the studio in the executive uh dining room the coral room and while uh-huh. Disney was having lunch at a table you know 10 feet away and it was that was really pretty amazing unfortunately he was you know, he was sort of back and forth between the studio and the hospital. St. Joe's was right across the street. And I think I'm positive that had he been in good health, we would have had a chance to meet him. But, um, but we weren't introduced to him at that point. And then sadly, about less than five weeks later, he was gone. So it was, but, you know, knowing that we were in such close proximity was really terrific. And then um, I tried out for ambassador the following year, really put a lot of work into preparing for it. So I could, I could recite the annual report backwards and forwards. I was, I was really, (laughs) I was really ready. (laughs) And uh, they they chose a, another really talented um, VIP hostess. And so I thought, I'm okay with this. I gave it my best shot and I'm just not what they're looking for. But I think because I had demonstrated such an interest in the company and really devoted myself to learning as much as I could in that particular year, that when they started looking for candidates... Um, young women who could work the press conference in Florida to announce phase one of Walt Disney World, then they thought of me. <laughs> and they they took, uh, I think it was, there were seven tour guides and VIP hostesses, and then uh, three of us from, or maybe six tour guides, and then three of us from uh, attractions and one young woman from foods. And they took 10 of us to Florida. And that was such a tremendous eye-opening experience. And we were there with we were there with Bill Evans, who showed us his tree farm. We were there with Admiral Fowler. We were there with Marty Sklar and John Hench and Dick Nunes and Dick Evans and uh, you know, eventually Don Tatum and and Card Walker. And and I I got to look at this. Tremendous project, and thought, well, th- this is so amazing. I mean, taking twenty-seven thousand acres of land and and putting in water control channels and excavating the area that would become the Seven Seas Lagoon and building up the theme park site and the Central Energy Plant and the, the, I you know it was just amazing, and I wanted to be part of it, and so I went. Uh, you know, when I went back to California, I started really exploring what I might be able to do. But one of the cool things uh, was when we were in Florida and we were there for about two weeks, we were there at the Ramada Inn in Ocoee.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And first of all, we were, we were helping organize all the RSVPs because it was a three day event. The first day was the press and, uh, and, And Don Tatum and Card Walker and Roy Disney were there um, to do a presentation in the I think is it the Parkland Cinema in Pine Hills? Yes. I think that was the name of the place. And so there was a press conference. Marty Sklar had put the whole presentation together that announced what phase one of Walt Disney World would be, which put a lot of detail and specifics into what. What the company, what Walt Disney had announced a couple years earlier, when he had said, "Project Florida, we're coming to to Florida, and we will do, you know, we will do Epcot, and we will do the Magic Kingdom." But we, but I think really putting the plan together to say, and we we plan to open with two themed hotels, which was a really new entrance into hospitality for Disney. But then there are these three other themed hotels, the Venetian and the Asian and the Persian, you know, here's a master plan of what phase one will look like and we'll open with the magic kingdom. And these are the attractions. So we also had a a large tent adjacent to the Ramada Inn, and it was filled with models and artwork. Um, And then, you know, Disney Imagineers and Disney executives there to talk about what the project would be. And so part of our assignment as as conference hostesses was to study the pictures of the executives. So if we were standing with someone from the press or in the subsequent days, somebody from uh American industry or Florida legislators, we could say, oh, let me introduce you to Don Tatum, our chairman at the board. Let sure. me introduce you to John Hench or Cardwalker or Marty Sklar. And you know, so we really we wanted to know <laughs> we wanted to know that we could pick those guys out of a crowd and and do graceful introductions. Um and then just being immersed in all the details of the project was um, really kind of key for us, and and we were so excited about it, so enthusiastic. I just came across a note that Marty Scholar wrote to me after the event, saying, "Thank you so much for your enthusiasm. You guys did so much to just um, provide that, you know, that spark that helped people see." How positive we are about the prospects of coming here, and then after after all of the all of the work and the conference was a success, um, we had a wrap party, uh, a, a dinner dance, and Roy and Edna were there, and oh, uh, other did I have re- a really cute picture of the two of them dancing together? Oh, and, that's
0: fantastic! Uh, oh, it's
2: really really wonderful and then you know and and then there was a little barbecue at bay hill country club and the company had acquired a couple of cottages so they could they could accommodate executives as they were making that trip from florida to california and back and so the the barbecue was at bay hill and roy and edna are sitting in uh, on lawn chairs and the the hostesses are gathered at Roy's feet. (laughs) He just, I mean, we didn't get to, I didn't get to meet Walt Disney, but I did get to spend a lovely sunny afternoon with Roy Disney and his lovely wife, Edna. And uh, it was, it was really fun. And Admiral Fowler who had been responsible for construction of a lot of Disneyland and then responsible for construction of Walt Disney world. He was piloting our float boat.
1: (laughs) Oh, wow.
2: (laughs) So, you know, a Navy guy.
1: (laughs) Yeah, sure. It's a natural fit. Oh, that's, um, you know, just thinking of, I've seen pictures from this event and there are so many, you know, it feels like an all hands on deck thing. So many of these people we think now of as legends, just hanging out, talking to people, um, uh, first, uh, you know, I love a good Roy story. So I just wonder what your impressions were of him.
2: He just couldn't have been nicer. And the, you know, we, Walt had such a public face that I think, you know, people like me who had grown up as children watching Walt Disney on television, uh, I, As a kid, I wasn't aware of Roy, and it was only in later years that I began to appreciate just what a tremendous partnership the two of them had and how... You know, I mean, you know, later working at Imagineering with Marty Sklar and Herbie Ryman and having Herbie tell the story about how Walt comes to him to say, you know, Herbie, my brother Roy has to go to New York to talk to investors and he needs something to show them. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And Herbie says, yeah, oh, that'd be interesting. (laughs) And he persuades Walt to spend the weekend with him. So as he, you know, gives... This creates this magnificent visual, the bird's eye of Disneyland and how breathtakingly accurate it is and how charming it is. I mean, Herbie was such a talent, but you could see Walt Disney had figured out in his mind where he wanted everything to go. And, And then to know that Roy then rolls up this piece of art and takes it, flies to New York. And in those days, you know, flights were long. <laughs> that was a long way to go. <laughs> and for California-based people to be pitching to the, you know, the investors in New York, it's really, you know, quite something. And I think, so Roy, um, he, he was so unassuming, but it was fascinating watching him and Dawn and Card during the press conference. I'd never been to a press conference. I remember standing in the back of the theater, this darkened theater, and they are on the stage and they are talking about what will be opening in Florida in two years. And, Mm -hmm. you know, such a monumental undertaking, but they, you know, Roy, I think what we see now is Roy's commitment to making Walt Disney's dream, his brother's dream, a reality. And it would have been so much easier just to sort of sit back and say, well, folks, well, guys, you know, that was Walt's dream, but Walt's gone. And he didn't say that. And, you know, I, because of my opportunity at the press conference to, to spend time with people like John Tatum and Card Walker. You know, both of those men, I would see a lot of them later when we were working on Epcot and they would be coming over to Imagineering and we'd be making presentations to prospective corporate sponsors. And I remember waiting with them one time for for the group to arrive and they said, you know, Peggy, we bet the company on Walt Disney World. It was such a huge undertaking. And so never been done. (laughs) And the people, (laughs) you know, we, we, it's kind of fun to do the impossible, but
1: (laughs) it's also expensive to do the impossible.
2: You know, I mean, they really bet the company on it. And when you think about, you know, the people who who were there designing the Magic Kingdom. Yes, they'd worked with Walt on creating Disneyland, but Walt was there. And now, you know, and everything in Florida was a little bigger, a little, you know, even within the Magic Kingdom, you know, we had gone from great moments with Mr. Lincoln to a hall filled with presidents. And, um, you know, I remember when we were touring WED, in preparation for the trip to Florida in 1969 and seeing, um, a plan for the Western River Expedition. And He had this really wacky space themed shooting gallery that wild things happen. <laughs>
1: uh-huh.
2: But, you know, it wasn't just a cookie cutter. It wasn't just okay, well, we've done Disneyland, so let's just take it to the East Coast. And I think Walt's, I don't know, trepidation or anxiety about, will that sophisticated East Coast audience respond to the Disneyland attractions? And so, you know, the World's Fair in, in 1964 and 1965 was a test of... Can we tell stories that appeal to an East Coast audience? And certainly great moments with Mr. Lincoln and the Carousel of Progress um, and the Magic Highways, you know, Mm -hmm. and it's a small world. I mean, all of those were huge successes at the fair and I think demonstrated that, yes, we can tell stories to to a, a national audience and truly an international audience and and uh, people will respond. And here we are, 12 theme parks down the road. Yeah.
1: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly.
2: And I have Who loved, knew? I've loved being able to, you know, find myself in Hong Kong or Paris or Tokyo, and you know, a little family is in front of you and you might not even know what language they're going to speak till they start talking excitedly about what they're going to do that day. But there is kind of an international appreciation for this kind of entertainment. And it's really been fun to see.
1: It's really neat. You got to see the, uh, I, I'm, I've i always been intrigued by t- the Teehee uh, sort of alien shooting gallery thing, because I've only ever seen, I, I had come across a couple of pictures of him you know working it wet on these really weird looking like <laughs> foam creatures kind of pipe cleaners and foam and things. Yes. I was like what is what is the, what is that supposed to be?
2: And you you know I mean we got to test it a little bit and you'd you know you'd hit the target and then this thing would pop open and something else would pop out and you know, I mean, it's it it is really fun to see how far that idea or these ideas, you know, keep sort of finding their ways into new things. Whether it's you know Midway Mania or some of the other sure. attractions, but really fun to see the early the early thinking on some of those things.
1: Absolutely, when the technology wasn't as fully developed. As exactly, it now. it's very interesting. <laughs> Uh, you know, you you mentioned uh, being around uh, Card Walker and Don Tatum a lot. I, I just wondered what your impressions of them were.
2: They were great. They were really, you know, Don Tatum, um, we enlisted Don to work with us on the EPCOT conferences. And he, and then when, when the, and from the conferences um, where we might have 80 to 100 people participating in the conference, then from that conference, we would create advisory boards of kind of a broad mix of people who demonstrated a keen interest in Epcot. And so then we'd bring the advisors to Imagineering every six months or so to to talk to us about the development that the creative teams were making on the attractions, and they could They could advise us. They might say, you know, rice is good, but and here's the name of the people who are running the Rice Institute in the Philippines. Or you've really Mm -hmm. got to talk to Carl Hodges again because he's doing such interesting stuff at the University of Arizona. And Don always made himself available to uh, to join us for dinners, to participate in the conferences, um, to. And he he even said, and I'd be the one, you know, bringing the agenda to him and talking him through what our plans were, and he would say, "No, you know, Peggy, if you we are happy to open our home if you need a venue for something like this." Wow! (laughs) Really? (laughs) No, he he and he and Card couldn't have been uh, more engaged and and more involved in things. I mean, they were certainly different personalities um card being the marketing guy and you know there was and we spent a lot of time showing presenting to card what what creative show content would be and invariably he would want us flip to the last page of the presentation <laughs> <It's> like,
1: <laughs> right
2: no oh, no card let us get you there that was that was always a challenge but um uh but Don, I think, being uh, you know a lawyer, he he's a more take. You know, he he would let us present the details in a way that Card never had patience for.
1: Card, yeah,
2: yeah. <laughs> Let's get to the <laughs> cut to the chase,
1: sure.
2: So, but they were both really, really, really engaged in uh, you know in. The development of Epcot and and the conferences that we hosted, and that was that was such a treat, you know, just to feel like I'm part of a company that that is so accessible. You know, we're used to that first name basis being part of the fabric of the park that we all were name tags and and so knowing that we're a first name company in the park is great, but that was my experience at the press conference. It was my experience in all my years working at Imagineering that it was really the sense of nobody does this alone and we all have a role to play and how can I, you know, how can I help you? That was really, really Amazing. And, you know, it was honestly, I mean, I was in my teens and twenties, and I'm thinking, and the chairman of the oldest right. of the elections is going to talk to me. And they did. They talked to us and, you know, listened to us. And it was great.
1: Yeah, it's fascinating to hear stories from them about how. I mean, everybody says it's the old sort of family shop feeling, the uh, kind of family business still, and how uh, available these people were to, to you know, young people like yourself.
2: Absolutely, yeah, absolutely.
1: So you were there in 1969. You saw like pretty much the beginning of construction uh you wind up back there on the ground later after the resort opens no no i was Um,
2: there six months before it opened
1: you were six months before it opened all right so uh what did you do then where what were you up to and uh what what was it like what 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 were your first impressions when you got there
2: so you know when i was there for the press conference um they were basically moving dirt around they had sure. excavated the seven seas lagoon and moved four and a half million cubic yards of earth to the theme park site and they had um and you and i have a picture of uh taken that day where they're flying a balloon at the height and location of Cinderella castle oh wow and you could see the utilidor had been carved out so but it's just dirt. And then if you if you made a quarter turn, you could see the the balloon flying at the future site of the contemporary resort hotel. And then if you made another quarter turn or a little bit more, you could look across to where the Polynesian village would be.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So that's what I saw in in spring of 1969. And I was back two years later. And, um, working in uh, we had trailers out at what they call the administration. Well, first, we were in the previous center, and um oh. I had I'd gone back to California after the conference, and just thinking, this is so big. they will need a lot of people and people with Disney experience, and I have you know, four years <laughs> being a ride operator. <laughs> mm-hmm. And and I really um, delved into uh, company history and the organization, the company. So, I felt like I had a good grounding and I could contribute. And um, eventually, someone said, well, you should go talk to this fellow, John Curry. He grew up uh, in Yosemite, his family had um, Camp Curry, and they they operated the hotel and hospitality uh, at at Yosemite. So John is going to be the vice president of the hotel, the Walt Disney Ho- World Hotel Company, which was a joint venture with U.S. Steel. And I think John, because of his extensive hotel experience. He could draw on lots of hotel people to fill in the staff. But he was looking for people with Disney experience that he could also introduce into this. So there would be people in his group who understood Disney and had connections within Disney. So he hired me to be um, a supervisor of guest activities. And my responsibility would be I had. Uh, I would have a team of young women at at an information desk in the Contemporary Resort Hotel and the Polynesian Village. And then we'd also be responsible for childcare facilities, the um, uh, Mouseketeer Clubhouses in those Mm -hmm. two locations. Um, So my mom had been an elementary school teacher. I had helped her many times dress out her rooms. I was, I love children's literature. I'd taken games and rhythms as a elective in college as part of my, I was, I was an English major, but you know, with a mom who's an elementary school teacher, you explore these other things. So I was really comfortable with that. And, and we, I bought uh, the, I chose the play equipment for both places, the outdoor climbing play equipment. Um, I ordered the, the books and the toys for the for the clubhouses i recruited and and interviewed and hired young women to be the staff for these two and then we would we would rotate so you wouldn't just be on the information desk sometimes you would be working in the clubhouse i also spent a lot of time just researching what florida requirements were because it turns out that if you're responsible for the care of a child for more than, I think it might have been three hours, then you also had to provide a hot meal and a separate napping place. And um, so we thought, well, that's not, you know, we think people come here to be together as a family. So this might just be so you can The mom and dad can go run off and play a game of tennis, or she can get her nails done, or he can play around to golf. But you know, this isn't like a place to park your children and then go off.
1: Right, yeah, that would be gonna strange gonna at Disney World. Yes.
2: <laughs> so, so you know, it was it was really interesting just to have to get into kind of the regulations of what would be required, and and so you know, we we had these places. Now it turns out that the books I ordered never arrived. The toys I ordered never arrived. Well, oh. they arrived, but. They were sent over to the Emporium and the Emporium thought, well, that's odd. You know, we hardly ever ordered three of anything, <laughs> but they sold it.
1: <laughs> yeah, sure. Why not send it? And we'll sell it. Yeah. Three copies of some random children's book. Why not?
0: Yeah. <laughs> I love that. It
2: was, uh, it was really, it was, but I remember, you know, so we were at the preview center and and in that case oh, well, i arrived in florida in march of 1971 and i had no hotel experience my family when we we would vacation we would camp in the sierras or we would we might stay in a motel on the central coast but mm-hmm. i'd never set foot in a real hotel so john curry sent me off to the breakers in palm beach for a couple months and i lived okay. there and i worked there 7 days a week and i i poured tea i i was responsible for the children's area i called bingo games i dispatched bellmen i learned to operate the hand crank elevator i was a seating hostess at the clubhouse for sunday brunches that you know it was like top to bottom i but then i really thought you know i'm so okay I know hotels now, and may I please come back? He sent me to West End to the Bahamas for a week. Again, another hotel experience. and then um, and then I so this is sort of a funny story. So you know Harris Rosen, mm-hmm. Harris was John's staff assistant back in nineteen seventy one. Really? Yes, he and Tim Fields. And Harris was tasked, John had asked Harris to accompany me to the Bahamas and introduce me to the management there. I mean, I really was, you know, like 22 and fresh out of school and this, you know, all new to me. So, we're in the airport and I'm thinking, Harris probably just thinks I'm an airhead. I, you know, I mean, I'm just out of college. I worked at Disneyland. Harris is serious about hotels, as we Mm -hmm. (laughs) come to find out.
1: (laughs) Indeed, yeah.
2: So I said, excuse me, Harris, let me just, I just want to get a magazine for the flight. And I thought, I know he thinks I'm going to come back with Mademoiselle or. (laughs) Right. So I bought Scientific American. <laughs> I enjoyed it. I mean, it was, yeah. not like that, but it was deliberate. <laughs> it's like, do not underestimate me.
1: <laughs> it's fascinating. I guess you this month, Harris. That's good stuff. That's funny. I find it interesting. They had this network of hotels. They were sending people off to, to, Uh, were there other people they were sending around to these different places as well? I
2: I don't know. I I don't think so. I think, um, you you know, just John wanted me to have seen how hotels operate their, Mm -hmm. you know, their childcare and guest information and that sort of thing. I mean, he had plenty of people coming in with real hotel experience And, and mine was. And so, you know, the way these things were divided up, the beaches, pools, lifeguards, boats, all of that reported to recreation and reported up to operations. So they were under the purview of Bob Matheson and, um, and the hotels, um, I came across a really interesting uh, memo going through stuff the other day where Kevin Donnelly, who was in charge of, who had a doctorate in recreation, but reported to operations, how Kevin Donnelly and John Curry had a meeting to reconcile who has responsibility for what. And, you know, it was it was just, you know, delineating those lines of responsibility for instances where you're sharing a venue, but you want to be clear about, okay, who picks up the towels and who hires the lifeguards and what are the, what are the hours of operation for the boats and the pools and those kinds of things. So,
1: yeah, yeah. I think a lot of people don't realize in those very early days, uh, they weren't just sole. It wasn't a purely Disney operation. They were, they were sort of splitting these things with us steel was- well,
2: U.S. Steel, I think they only had responsibility for building the hotels. So they didn't oh, okay. have any manage- – you know, Disney had total responsibility for, for staffing the hotels, for managing the hotels, for working with the, the sales organizations. Um, but, but this was a joint venture with U.S. Steel because U.S. Steel wanted to try this modular construction. And these would be two – um, very visible demonstration projects and the the facility for the fabrication of the hotel rooms was about six miles away really next to what became our administration area mm-hmm. and where we had there were some buildings but some trailers and and then the U.S. Steel um, fabrication building was just I think I think there's a Uh, softball field there now or something.
1: Yes, (laughs) yeah.
2: But, you know, they'd pop the, they'd fabricate the room, dress out the interiors, stack them up, and then transport them over to the site and pop them into the building. And that's what was happening when I arrived. And I remember John giving us a tour of the hotel and we're wearing boots because the mud in the portico share it hasn't been paved yet. It's just mud you know, you're tromping through, (laughs) you know, nearly knee deep mud. And, and John saying now over here will be reception and this will be, you know, you certainly the elevator uh, shafts were up, but, you know, it was, it was still muddy and, and stuff was still coming up out of the ground and getting slid into places. I have a picture of me in a, it was part of an orientation and um, I. everybody in the picture. I'm the only woman, but the other guys in the picture are all on the hotel management team. And we're standing in front of Cinderella castle and there's still scaffolding around it. So wow. this would have been probably that summer.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, the contemporary famously even on opening day was still not, complete
2: right and my office for opening day we were we were in rooms in the, the south building
1: mm-hmm.
2: and um, and in fact on opening day one of my uh one of the young women on my team showed up and you know the excitement of the day she'd forgotten her shoes oh gosh <laughs> so luckily it's very excited we wore the same size and I had shoes that would, I had, you know, heels that would be appropriate for her uh to wear while she sat at the at the desk in the in the lobby. But you know, it was, yeah, the people weren't we were we were staying in the uh, you know, we'd set up offices in that in that building. And I know the tower building wasn't really ready yet.
1: Mm-hmm. so what on on um, sort of opening day what what was the extent of your offerings i guess what uh what what were you doing when when that was going on
2: you know my i have a car. well for opening day mm-hmm. um i was barefoot in my office i couldn't leave. <laughs> <laughs> my, good point,
1: good point.
2: <laughs> so i was really curious to know what was going on out there but you know my the my team of people were out in the lobby um talking with guests at the at the two hotels and i i can't i don't i mean it was more than 50 years ago so you have to forget oh sure sure. <laughs> And then and then on the, then the dedication weekend, that was, um, I think, like the 24th or 5th of October. I remember um, I was assisting with crowd control on the risers, the, the bleachers that were set up at the train station. And Gary Kruger was the photographer who was capturing those amazing images. So I did get to see some of the festivities a um, couple weeks later.
1: That's fun. Yeah. Well, I mean, this hotel, the Contemporary, and the Polynesian as well, were really special places, especially at the time of the Contemporary, very swanky place. Uh, very, um, I love the, the colors and everything. I just wonder if you could talk a little about what it was like at the resort at that time. Uh, you know, what kind of activities you were overseeing. Um, if there was anything memorable, you know, what did you like to do with your off time?
2: well uh let's see so um one of the things that happened within a few months of opening roy disney bought u.s steel out of the hotel company Mm -hmm. so now it's just disney it's all disney and um And then, because of that, there was a big reorganization. So we didn't have, we didn't need a separate Walt Disney World Hotel company. Um, That that became the Walt that became the hotel division of Walt Disney World. So within a couple of months, there was a big reorganization, and I found myself and my team absorbed into Recreation. So so we had we had the. Responsibility, we still had responsibility for the guest information uh desks in the in the two hotels, but we were kind of stepping on each other. You know, we were way overstaffed for for one group. And I had no experience with lifeguards and beaches and pools and boats and things like that. So mm-hmm. I was clearly a fish out of water um, in the recreation group. And so one day I can, and at that point we, I was working with the recreation team and we had our office in a little cabana at the foot of the, the stairs that face day Lake. So, you know, mm-hmm. that whole string of cabanas we would, and Kevin Donnelly, who was head of recreation, he'd actually worked for my uncle in El Monte. Oh. So, you know, we called him Doctor Donnelly or Doctor Frisbee because he had invented something like Frisbee golf with his dog. Um, oh wow! He really, okay. he was a really energetic, um, smart guy who was really looking and very entrepreneurial. So Kevin decided that we could do uh, evening film festivals in the uh, in the sunshine state exhibitorium and you know which was this enormous space that was there in case i don't know a car show or you know there it was part of the convention facilities but it was sitting empty and so kevin managed to set up a little theater uh, he found a source for popcorn that we sold every night and what we didn't sell we ate the next day <laughs> one rainy rainy day we couldn't leave the cabana (laughs) at the end of the day i looked down and i realized that that you know my colleagues and i had consumed this entire it would have been like a a one of those uh chairs that you know those bag chairs that are just
1: right yeah
2: (laughs) it's like we ate all that So, um, so there was this big reorganization. I came in one day and my name wasn't on the schedule. And they said, mm, you should probably go talk to Bob Matheson. And so, I did. And Bob explained, you know, Peggy, we have all the, all the supervisors we need in operations. So, we have arranged for you to move to convention sales, to marketing. And I thought, well… <laughs> Another thing I know nothing about, but but I'm there and I've I've started as a coordinator of meetings and going in to make sure that if the room was supposed to be set up schoolroom style for 75, it was, and the coffee break would be ready at 10 and that when they changed their mind about lunch, I'd be there to communicate to the chefs. (laughs) and, um, And, you know, and then pretty soon I I was planning meetings and I was traveling around the country to promote that Walt Disney World has meeting facilities. And, you know, we were, everybody by 1972 or three had heard of Walt Disney World, but many of them, especially these meeting planners who were doing the um million dollar roundtable meetings or, you know, big incentive travel meetings for their top producers, they, they would think, well, d- you know, Disneyland. And we'd say, well, we have a theme park like Disneyland, the Magic Kingdom. But we also have championship golf courses. We have tennis courts. We have uh, water recreation. You can bring your entire family. You know, in those days, you could get a room at the contemporary for something like $30 a night. I mean, the opening was $22 and then went up every, you know, $4, (laughs) $4, $4, no extra charge for kids in the room. Um, So we said, you know, you're going to Greenbrier this year, but next year you could come to Walt Disney World. And I had this wonderful experience with... Um, the man who uh, his name was Joseph Finelli, and he was the meeting planner for the U S chamber of commerce. And he had, um, he was coming to Orlando to do some site visits. He'd look at, at our facilities and he'd look at some of the other hotels in the area. And he a little dismissively said, well, I'm, I'm staying right across the street. Well, six miles away. (laughs) I was
1: about to say, there wasn't a lot across the street back in those days.
2: (laughs) And so he, uh, when he reached my office, he was a little chagrined and, and said, okay, well, why don't you show me around? So we boarded the monorail and I took him around through the Polynesian village and, you know, the magic kingdom. And then, you know, I, I, we, I spent the afternoon with him and he could not have been nicer. And, and in fact, he arranged for his group to come to Walt Disney world and he brought his family. He brought his wife, his in-laws and his three children. And they, they, invited me to join them for for dinner at the Polynesian Village. His daughter just sent me a picture of us at the luau. We oh, wow. exchanged Christmas cards for years and years thereafter. We It was just, you know, such a treat to be able to show the scope and scale of Walt Disney World to people who really appreciated it. And, um, you know, we had wonderful opportunities to, I think, amaze people with how accommodating the facility could be and how much there was to do for everybody.
1: It's amazing to me that this was an era when people didn't fully understand. And I guess you understand when you look back at like the TV specials, the things they really tried to highlight the scope of the resort Outside of the theme park, they would barely mention the theme park. They'd talk about the golf courses and the yeah. tennis and everything else, <laughs> the boating and everything, and it's just amazing to think people didn't understand this. Uh, so they were coming. I assume were they having a lot of events there at the Contemporary? Oh, um, oh
2: yeah, oh yeah.
1: In the ballrooms, yeah. and oh, I love absolutely. the Sunshine State Exhibitorium is one of my favorite. Uh, Marty names of all time. Uh, that's such a great bombastic name.
2: It was. Now it's you know it's a lovely steakhouse.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, see, I remember it from when it was the Fiesta Fun Center, which was well, one of see, my favorite. Well, oh, yeah. So
2: that know. was obviously it needed a better name for yeah. <laughs> if you're going to attract people to you know. And I think Kevin must have filled it with games and things like that. Foosball, and I mean there were he was so uh, entrepreneurial, and we we had this program we would refer to inclement weather, which meant you know when it's raining, people can't be out on the lake, and so we have to be able to provide things for kids and families to do when the weather is bad, and so yeah, so Kevin was very entrepreneurial about all of those things, and I you know I had a chance to travel. To uh, New York and Philadelphia and San Francisco and Boston. And, you know, the manager, Jim Rye, and I would travel to these places and we'd set up hospitality suites and we would talk to people about what amenities they would find at Walt Disney World. And it was really, it was really fun because, again, you know, people didn't really, until you visited, you couldn't, there was nothing else like it. So right. you can say, "Well, it's like this, except it's like Disneyland, except and it's twice the size of the island of Manhattan."
1: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, I have to ask anybody who was there at this time, um, just you know what it was like living in Orlando, working in Orlando. It's so different. Uh, Disney World's relationship to Orlando, just—I I mean, I remember in my lifetime you would pass Orlando and drive through a lot of nothing. And now it's stuff is all the way down all the way to Walt Disney world. What did you do? What was it like, you know, being a young person working at this new resort, I would imagine it was a pretty fun time to be there.
2: It was very fun. But, um, and so when I first arrived, I, I rented a little cottage from, um, from Jim Pasilla and his wife and Jim was head of personnel. Okay. And uh, he had this little cottage, really, for his parents. Um, but they were they were wherever they were. and And so it was available for me to rent that first spring uh, into fall. So I lived in Windermere. And you know, what a charming place. I mean, I mm. you know, I grew up in Orange county, california. and and Orange County has its name. In California, for the same reason Orange County has its name in Florida, there were orange groves everywhere. And we moved into the house I grew up in, in 1953, and every house in our track had one orange tree in the backyard as a, a, you know, a souvenir of the orchard that had once been there, the grove. But the orange groves in California had given way to disneyland and a lot of other places so so such a surprise to find myself in orlando florida in orange county um and being surrounded by orange trees and just you know the air being filled with smell of orange blossoms and and just the you know windermere was dirt roads and you know which is good for drainage and things like that that (laughs) water from the rain seeps back into the ground it's a good it's a good thing but and it was such a charming place because there were little cottages like mine and then there were grander homes and on the lakes and we would water ski so for me the my social group was the people who had transferred from disneyland And there were lots of us who were in the, you know, we're in our early to mid twenties. Um, Some people single and some people newly married and just sort of starting out in life or meeting their future uh, spouse at Walt Disney Mm -hmm. world. And so there were weddings and things like that. We did a lot of water skiing on the weekends And then, um, and I was new to that. In fact, the brochure for Walt Disney World um, featured. uh, This was like the planning brochure when we're talking Mm -hmm. about what's coming. There was a graphic of a young woman skiing, and I Mm -hmm. thought that I want to be that. That's what I. (laughs) I want to know how to ski, and so and you know the copy said crystal clear lakes. Well, they didn't say with water moccasins and
1: yeah.
2: <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> they didn't tell us about the housekeeping spiders and the palmetto bugs and the deer fly. And, and in fact, I remember sitting in my apartment, in my little cottage in Windermere and a public service came on that talked about killer winds. So I'm a California girl, third generation Californian i've been through some earthquakes but a tornado that comes in the middle of the night unannounced a hurricane right. you know things that that can take whole swaths of the town away <laughs> I like, oh no and it did feel i was also struck by how small a place this was what sense of community there was that you know anaheim wasn't a big Place. I mean, we had, our big thing was a Halloween parade.
1: Right, right.
2: But but I remember listening to a television, it could have been radio maybe, but the announcer said something like, Mrs. Wilma Rutherford and her daughter Bernice are going to Philadelphia next week to visit her cousin. And now for the local news. <laughs> 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 get more local. <laughs>
1: right. I mean it breaking like news.
2: L- later Prairie Home Companion kind of, you know, gave me a gl- reminded me of it, but it did feel so much more it was really charming in a in a way that I just wanted to soak all that up, you know. I remember going to uh Zellwood and um and is it Casadega, the the spiritualist community?
1: Oh, I've I've heard of that. I'm I'm not sure.
2: It's like Casa anyway. Um but I will tell you, just you know, I also went to Jordan Marsh to get a credit card because I, mm-hmm. I had a credit card in California at Robinson's and Bullocks, and and I had a management position here at Walt Disney World. I've been working for a while. I bought my own car and I was denied an application because I was a single young woman with no man to sign for me.
1: Unbelievable.
2: And I thought, Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, this is different. <laughs> and there were blue laws. You know, we like to water ski on, uh, we were mostly working six days a week, but Sunday was a good day to get out on, you know, on a lake with a float boat and some jet ski, some water ski or some ski boats. And, and you know, you couldn't buy beer on a Sunday morning. So California didn't have blue laws. And that was novel. The other thing was just shopping for produce. So <laughs> California, um, you, you know, we have artichokes, we have, you know, it's also kind of a a melting pot, a fusion of different ethnic cuisines. So I grew up eating tortillas and Mexican food and Chinese food and Japanese food and, and, um, and, and, you know, liking to cook those things. And I remember buying ginger, a ginger root in one of the grocery stores and the cashier saying, well honey, what are you gonna do with that? <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, Mexican food, we had to we had to import our own taco sauce and tortillas because the only tortillas you could get were canned. And oh. you know, we were they were yeah, they came in a can. <laughs> no, <laughs> so, thank you. so luckily there were lots of business trips people were making between the two coasts and and we would always celebrate when somebody came in with fresh tortillas or or tacos victoria taco sauce or or
1: <laughs> right well, even even a decade later, uh, when Epcot opens, you see i I love reading the coverage in the local press of, you know, all these restaurants that are opening on world showcase. And now, you know, you wouldn't think anything about going to get. I mean, Mexican food is just like, American food now, pretty much, but, uh, but you did have gringos. Way.
2: We discovered gringos in winter park back in 69. And that was, mm-hmm. that was like, oh, you know, we're <laughs> <a> civilization here <laughs> and that the B line. So <laughs>
1: yeah. Well, so you've been traveling all over, you've been sort of, you know, representing the company, but then you get a job, you get a, you get an offer to go to wed from somebody who uh, our listeners will know very well. Uh, tell us how that happens.
2: Well, so my office was in the Contemporary Resort Hotel when I was in convention sales. And and people I had met, Disney executives would generally stay at the Contemporary Resort Hotel. So it wasn't unusual to see someone that I had met at the press conference, John Hench or, or um, Bill Martin or Marty Sklar was not unusual to see them in the hotel lobby or in one of the restaurants. And one day I bumped into Marty Sklar in the, in the area near the elevators at the contemporary on the first floor. And at this point I had been in Florida for about five years and i you know, I had loved my experience, but I had started thinking that I was just a voice on the telephone. I have a little brother who's thirteen years younger than I am. And I thought, I'm just a voice on the phone to him. He's growing up, and uh, I'm missing that. And maybe so maybe there's something back in California that I could do. And I was thinking, maybe the Magic Kingdom Club or I was't really sure. but I was I was kind of open to exploring what those opportunities might be. And I bumped into Marty and we're catching up. and I'd met Marty at the press conference. he'd worked very closely with us, coaching us on our narrations and you know just so always a, always a great guy and really always uh, friendly and happy to talk. So I said, well, you know, Marty, I'm, I'm looking at what there might be back in California. And he knew I was in convention sales. And he said, well, we're getting ready to, we're starting to plan Epcot. And I want to kick it off with a series of conferences that will help inform the pavilions of Future World. And you have been a meeting planner for the last four years. And you know Walt Disney World. And you know Disney, so maybe you should be the person who comes to California to to help us plan these meetings. And I thought, yes, that sounds fabulous. Yeah,
1: so, sure. <laughs> right.
2: So I uh, so I I accepted the position and moved back to drove myself back across the country to California. I did it in four days. And um, I settled in in Orange County because it was where I had some friends and I knew the area. And I thought, now this will mean driving to Glendale every day. And if that becomes too much, I can always look for accommodations up in Glendale. But as it turns out, I made that drive for the next 40 years.
1: Wow. Wow. <laughs> I'm that's dedication. <laughs> I'm impressed.
2: Marty actually asked me once how many miles I had. And at that point I had enough miles to have gone to the moon and I was on my way back. And I'm sure I, I might've circled moon <laughs> a couple times by the, by the end of those 40 years.
1: So uh, yeah, you wind up at wed. What, what were your first impressions? What did you think when you're in entering this world?
2: It was amazing. You know, I, never imagined I'd be there. And it, you know, it was such a storied place. I mean, I knew about the talent that resided within those walls. And I had seen so much of the artwork they had created and the, and the things that had been built because of their imaginations. And, you know, so I was just, I was so excited to be there. And I knew who some of these people were by then, you know, so I would, oh, that's Claude Coates. And, you know, Mark Davis has an office just around the corner from mine. And, and John Hench, and John, you know, we met John at the press conference back in 69. He loved to read our palms. And, you know, we all just, we would, we just adored John because he was so full of wisdom. You know, he could explain anything. Like, why is Mickey Mouse beloved around the world? Because he doesn't have any pointy parts. Mm-hmm. And you know, why does the spoken wheel design for Disneyland work so well? And why do we only need a little bit of red to engender a, a sense of anxiety or anticipation? And why do we love thrill attractions? And, you know, I mean, there was nothing you could ask John that he wouldn't have a really wonderful, insightful answer to. And there was Marty Sklar. And, you know, I knew Marty as. The man who had written the presentation for the press conference—he'd written our narration. I knew he was a word guy. I'd even, when I was in convention sales, I'd even called him one time to say, "Marty, we need some clarification on this nomenclature. I mean, is it contemporary North and South? Is it Bayside? Is it Lakefront? Is it Lake? You know, we're we mm-hmm. have too many, <laughs> too many." Terms for the same thing. Right. So, boy, was I astonished to find that by the time I got back to California, Marty was responsible for all of creative, and so you know I hadn't quite understood how senior his position had become and how overarching his responsibilities were for creativity. But um, right. but he was very hands on and. So I was reporting first to a fellow named Bill Williams, who was working with Gordon Cooper on the the future technologies idea, because early on there was an idea that there would be real world demonstration projects on the property. I mean, maybe even a nuclear reactor, but, mm-hmm. um, but I think as, as, people like Marty got more into defining how do we really make this Epcot idea present? How do we make it real? The idea being that we need to find ways that we can communicate with people. We are not educators, we're storytellers. So first of all, how can we, how can we meet these people in, in, academia, in business, in government, in the foundations. How can we introduce ourselves to these people who are engaged in serious work and invite them to help us understand what the issues are, what the stories are, how we can be good communicators of this, what kind of partnerships we can form to be the forum for conversations. Um, so I so pretty soon I Bill Bill left shortly after I arrived, and Pat Scanlon and Frank Stanick were working mm-hmm. with Marty on these conferences. And so there was an Epcot Future Technology Conference on Energy, Agriculture, and food production. And that one, that actually happened before I got there. That happened in May of 1976, and I got there in the fall. Oh. Um, and You know, that was kind of our first step into having serious conversations with people to say, you know, we haven't given up on Walt's idea of an experimental prototype community of tomorrow. We just don't know exactly what form it will take. And we'd like you to help us understand what the issues are and how we can communicate them. And, And so we met Carl Hodges at that conference. And Carl continue to be a really valuable um, resource for us. You know, the land pavilions. So the living with the land is really is taken from what Carl was doing at the University of Arizona in terms of controlled environment agriculture and uh, shrimp farming operation in Puerto Penasco. And um, And from those first two conferences, we formed advisory boards for energy and agriculture. And we would bring those people back into um, imagineering, to WED, as it was called at the time, to review with our creative teams the direction we were taking. And then, and it was a great way because we were also wanting to explore corporate sponsorship. We said, we can't do this alone. And we don't see this just like a World's Fair where a company comes in and just tells their story. We want to find companies for whom a relationship will be meaningful, but we want to be sure that the story we're telling is more balanced. And we can only create that balance if we have a panel of people who will help us balance it. So... You know, when Exxon became the sponsor for Universe of Energy, it was really helpful to have people um, who were not associated with Exxon who could give us some guidance in terms of how can we balance that story. And right. with, um, uh, with the land pavilion, we, in fact, you know, one of the... So we did the conference in in May of 76 on energy, agriculture, food production, And then in um, March of 1978, we did a conference that we co-sponsored with Johns Hopkins called Good Health in America, Challenge and Choice. And in that case, we we invited food manufacturers. So Kraft was there, General Mills was there. We had people from pharmaceutical companies like Bristol, Myers, and uh, We had, you know, just a whole host of people who might have an interest either in food production or um, nutrition or health and pharmaceutical things. And and it turns out that Bill Beers was there representing. He was the the chairman or CEO of Kraft. Uh And he said, you know, I... I have a farm (laughs) and I, I, you know, I represent a company that, that provides um, food for people, cheeses and dressings and all kinds of things. But, you know, at heart, I'm a farmer. And I think the story of how we feed ourselves is an important story. And I'm really interested in that land pavilion you guys are doing. So, you know, don't sign us up for the health pavilion, wonders of life. Um, we, you know, we're interested in food. And uh, so, you know, I mean, these things, we couldn't always predict what the affinities would be, but in this case, it was his personal interest as a farmer. Um, and then he brought his executives in to show them what he was finding so interesting about this and uh, and it was really fun just to see how you know aspects of so the kitchen cabaret came about and mm-hmm. and uh, um they just you know just listen to the land and just you know wonderful and living with the land just wonderful stories that were all included under that land umbrella
1: it's fascinating how you know such a A conversation with a single person can really change the course of you know this this whole massive pavilion you know just his interest in farming i know that you know prior to that tony baxter had been working on this different concept for the land and so it kind of takes a left turn and we go from sort of ecology to agriculture and it's it's because of this guy that's really interesting
2: yeah well, I still remember those beautiful biomes that Tony had in, <laughs> in oh my his gosh, model. Gosh, <laughs> that model is something else.
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, how did you go about finding participants for these events? How'd you how'd you find these people to bring in?
2: It wasn't just up to me. I mean, you know, we would all be. We were reading so much in those days, just trying mm-hmm. to understand who is doing what out in the world, and and leveraging our network of people so you know the people who had um had advised us on the lands the land advisory board um chancellor daniel aldrich was he was the first chancellor of uc irvine and he also i think was an agronomist and um so you know, you would talk to, you. we'd bring these advisors in and they would say, well, you know, you really ought to be talking to, and then they would give us names of people. And then we were reading all the time. And so we're reading articles, who is, who is doing interesting work. And, you know, we had, we had some really remarkable um, advisors. There was a fellow named Ralph Cummings from the Rockefeller Foundation. And I think he'd been with Princeton prior to that. Um, just you know, really, really remarkable people who had great networks of their own. so we would we would start gathering those names together. We were also looking for prospective sponsors. So we wanted we wanted to include people from from the corporate world, hoping that they would be intrigued to want to have their companies associated with the with the stories that we would be telling in future world you know, when we would host these conferences with, so Don Tatum and Card Walker would always make themselves available to talk about what the vision for Epcot would be and how we saw it as a place to communicate to the public about important issues of the time. And, and that we also wanted Epcot to be a forum for ideas. And, um, and then we would bring people in like, um, Fred um, Graham was a uh, legal correspondent for CBS. And we had Michael Halberstam, who was um, ethics for modern medicine and, you know, just really top notch people, just, you know, really, really interesting people. So it was it was such a heady time to be talking to these people. I would
1: imagine so. I mean, I'm I'm always impressed when I start uncovering these lists of these people that you had. Um, you know, I think of like Gerald O'Neill, who's such a famous person for talking about space stations and space exploration, things like that.
2: I was in a meeting with him. I, I you know, I was there taking notes, but oh yeah, talking about, you know, we what we need because. Human bodies aren't really... We don't have lifespans long enough to explore the universe. You know, it's just too big. <laughs> so we need self-replicating machines that can that can go... We can send out into space and then at a certain point, they can replicate themselves and continue that journey. And I thought, I can't believe I'm sitting here. I mean, four years ago, I was... Worried about whether the coffee break would happen on time, and here <laughs> I surrounded by people who are doing such amazing work, and the uh, some of our seas advisors, so Dr. Robert Ballard and Dr. Sylvia Earle were in the same conference room with us one one morning in Glendale, and and Bob Ballard had just come back from the Galapagos with a video that he had captured when he was on the ocean floor in one of those, you know, tiny little submersibles. And so we're in this darkened room and the strobe light from the video comes on and it reveals giant tube worms that are growing next to deep ocean vents. And these living creatures are, have never seen light ever. And they're so they're not, these plants aren't growing from photosynthesis, they're growing from chemosynthesis. And, you know, the pressure at that depth is so incredible. But here are these living things that, and I thought Dr. Sylvia Earle was going to dive across the table to get a closer look. It was just so yeah. remarkable. And we're sitting there thinking, well, now there are six people in the world who've seen this. You know, it was just, and it's pretty remarkable to know that those two, especially, have continued to do such important work in service to the oceans and humanity. And I just feel, I mean, we were so, so lucky to, to have them want to participate with us in bringing stories to our epcot guests
1: absolutely and it was so effective and i think you know they had those those two worms in the in the seas film and of course that was the first place i ever saw that as a kid and so you know you go on and later in life you run into these things and you're like i know that you know i i learned that <laughs> at epcot so yeah. it, uh, it all worked out in the end uh, how many of these conferences did you put together? You mentioned the agriculture and energy and uh, the health.
2: We did. We did good health in America. Uh, I have to correct myself. We did it in March of
1: nineteen seventy-seven.
2: Okay. And then we did um, another Epcot Future Technology Conference with a really specific focus in May of nineteen seventy-eight, and that was. It was titled Energy conservative techniques for cold weather protection of plants. So something that people in Florida, particularly, or the Southeast, really care about, because, you know, you've got citrus that's so or other trees, but certainly in Florida, it's citrus that are so susceptible to frost. And so if you think it's going to be cold, then do you pull those smudge pots out and light them all? And, you know, there's an environmental cost, there's a financial cost. And what if you don't really need it? And are there other, are there other techniques that we could use? So one thing was a freeze line prediction system that I think uh, NASA was looking at it was NASA or NOAA. And so it was NOAA and their GOES satellite. And there was a teleparticipation at that conference with NASA. I mean, this is the day when we're doing the Zoom. And I can see it was so easy. I just clicked a button. But, mm-hmm. you know, in those days, there'd be a big trailer out front with an enormous dish. Right. And, you know, a big crew just to so we could see each other. Um, so this freeze-line prediction system was something that was really Experimental, really novel, and we wanted—you know—it fit with that idea of maybe Epcot will be a place to demonstrate cutting-edge technology, or you know, just all the, to inspire people about what what is actually going on in the research labs around the world. And then there were people at that conference who. Um, so there was a fellow named Tom Me, and you might have heard of Me Fog. So he he was the president of Me Industry. But one of the things they were proposing you could do to protect the orchards was to fill them with fog, because mm-hmm. then when it freezes, when it when the temperature drops, it only get the fog sort of. In, you know, envelops these with sort of a protective insulation, so they won't. The fruit won't won't be damaged, or the flowers won't be damaged. Um, mm-hmm. There was um, a sprinkling system. Maybe you sprinkle the, the then it forms ice, but then it doesn't get any colder. And I mean, there were there were temperature monitorings, day sprinkling. Um, Uh, wind machines, heating, foam, you know, it was all part of this kind of Epcot demonstration project direction. Um, But then Epcot opens, then our focus really was getting Epcot open. And so Marty asked me to do the historical research for spaceship earth. So I spent the next four years researching 40,000 years of communications history and, Um, Pat Scanlon was busy presenting to prospective corporate sponsors. We'd set up a a presentation area in New York at Rockefeller Center, I think, and also something in Washington, D.C., because we were also looking for sponsors for the um, or participants for the World Showcase Pavilion. So, Mm So Lang Washburn was making lots of presentations to foreign diplomats Pat and uh, Pete Clark and Jack Lindquist and Jim Garber um, and, and Dan Seymour were all taking turns presenting um, to, to prospective sponsors um, and bringing them to California when it made sense, but making the pitches in New York when, uh, when it made more sense to do this on the East Coast. And then a year after Epcot opened, we did one more conference, and that was um, called Communications and the Quality of Life, Looking to the Future. And we uh, co-sponsored it with the Annenberg Schools of Communications in, I think they're they're in, is it Philadelphia? And I know they are at USC in California.
1: Yeah.
2: And Ambassadors Annenberg. Walter and Lee Annenberg both came to the conference and um, we had the former mayor of New York, uh, Mayor oh, wow. John Lindsay, and Alan Kay was there, Sherry Turkle, um, who was with MIT and was doing a lot of um, look into sort of what, what are the social aspects of computing? How, and how can we, how do young girls use computers in ways that are the same or different from the way boys use them and you know how do we how do we engage people alan Kay is saying lock computers in the garage so kids will want to get at them (laughs) and then they'll learn (laughs) to take them apart like they did cars and uh who else did we have we had um Craig Fields was a principal scientist for information processing at Department of Defense. We had um, Leo Botstein, the president of Bard College, Daniel Borston, the Librarian of Congress, um, oh Warren Bennis, School of Business Administration for USC. Um, Maxine Green, Teachers College, Columbia University, Neil Postman, um, Department of Communications, Art and Science at New York University. Um, he had just written a book called Amusing, well, it actually had delivered a speech to the Frankfurt Book Fair called Amusing Ourselves to Death.
1: <laughs>
2: and, and he was saying, you know, we our attention spans are getting shorter and shorter. This is 1982, so you can only imagine. Right. <laughs> but he's saying, you know, our capacity to process complex issues and be able to follow written or oral arguments is diminished because we're, we're doing these, in those days, 15 second sound bites. So you can, you know, only yeah. imagine where this has gone. Um, Sylvester Pat Weaver, communications consultant, and former president of NBC was there. And Dan Yankilovich, who was chairman of Yankilovich Skelly and White Survey.
1: They were like a polling firm.
2: Yeah, right? polling firm. Yeah, um, Everett Rogers, who had written Diffusion of Innovation, and he was with uh, the Institute of Communications at Stanford. So, I mean, really, really amazing people. And and at that point, we were really posing the question: Could Epcot become a forum for conversations that matter? Is this something that we could? Is there a need for it, and could we fill that need? And that was our last conference.
1: <laughs> oh, it's a shame. I mean, it's one thing these really impress on me: these conferences. It, Disney wasn't phoning it in to make Epcot a serious impactful thing i mean the, the company really did its homework it really wanted to make an impact and and all this planning leading up to the park's opening
2: well and i think you know we wanted i think we recognized the responsibility to be as well informed about subjects as we could be and we were really reaching out to it wasn't quite global in those days. You know, we were really still pretty much talking to people in America, people in North America about, about issues. We wouldn't go to Paris for another 10 years. We were just dipping our toe into the water of what would it be like to have a theme park in Tokyo a Disney park in Tokyo, so Tokyo and Epcot, uh, Tokyo Disneyland and Epcot were really happening at the same time. But as you know, we were really uncertain about how our stories would play in another culture, and so. But I, I am so proud of of the company's efforts to really engage with people at the highest levels, you know, not just people who agreed with us, but people who had spent their their lives in the pursuit of serious research and serious work, and that they were so inspired by the opportunity to share that, that they wanted to work with us. And that was the most rewarding thing of all, just, you know, being able to to see that they really believed in in the process. So 10 years passed after Epcot opened, and Barry Braverman was the executive responsible for Epcot. And he said, you know, as we come up onto this 10-year anniversary, let's let's see if we think that the stories we're telling are still relevant. And if the production techniques we've used, if those are still relevant, or if maybe there have been advances that, that we could have made that we can make that, you know, can we tell the story differently today because technology's moved on or is there a different story we should tell? And so I had just finished one of my 40 extension classes at UCLA on survey design. And so about, probably about 20 of us went to Florida and we formed small teams. I was sure that I didn't want Um, there to be a particular bias about everybody experiences every attraction in the same order. So I want to mix it up. Sent everybody off with questionnaires to evaluate the story, how timely, how relevant. You know, do we know things today that we didn't know when we were telling the story? And the production value, does it look dated? And so, and then I spent the weekend tabulating the results and creating charts and graphs and things that I could play back to uh, Barry and Marty and others. The next Monday I was staying in one of the townhouses at Lake Buena Vista and moving furniture around. Cause it wasn't really set up to do work.
1: Right. <laughs> um, right.
2: <laughs> so I'm at the table by the window and I could plug my computer in and start sorting through all these things. And I, I moved a chair and a little notebook, a little handmade notebook fell out from the back. And it had been, it was made of construction paper and a child probably in the fourth grade had stapled it together and lined the inside and then drawn um, a picture or actually with kind of gold glitter ink. Mm Mm-hmm or Bronze, Inc., had written Ryan's Journal of Walt Disney World. Or it might have been Ryan's Journal of Epcot. And, and then Ryan's first and last name at the bottom. And I opened it up, and there was only one entry. It said, today we got to ride um, at the land boat ride. No one got to sit up front except Thomas something and me. And I. And then that was the only entry. And clearly <laughs> Ryan had lost this. You know, it had fallen behind the couch and then Ryan's folks checked out. And so I thought, this is exactly what we hope Epcot will inspire. You know, wouldn't it be great to be able to take a time machine and 15 or 20 years from now to find out, that Ryan became an agronomist or a teacher mm-hmm. or a, you know, because of Ryan's experience at Epcot. And so I saved it and, and I brought it back to my office in California and it put it in a box. And every couple of years I had to move my boxes around and I'd come across this and I'd think, I wonder what happened to Ryan. Mm-hmm. And, and then Google happened. And so periodically I would Google the name, and one day, Ryan's name popped up in an obituary, and I thought, oh, but it was Ryan's grandmother, and she lived a very long, looked like a very lovely life, well-beloved, and it's citing her survivors, and her survivors are her granddaughters, Ryan Marie, and her sister Thomasina and I thought Uh, I know this is my Ryan
1: yes (laughs) absolutely
2: I got in touch with her and said please don't be alarmed I'm not a (laughs) stalker (laughs) but I think I have something of yours from many years ago from 1972 and Uh, She said, yes, you know, whenever my folks would take us on vacations, my sister and I would make these little journals and she sent me pictures of her and her sister in these little house on the prairie dresses at Christmas Uh and they're opening the gift and it looked just like the Disney commercial where they discover they are going to Walt Disney World and the Uh first picture is the girls unwrapping the, you know, Pulling the ribbon off the package, and the next one is they're squealing with joy because they're going to go to Walt Disney World. And she sent me pictures of them in the pillory at uh, in front of Hall of Presidents, and sitting on the on the benches over by the France Pavilion. But you know, certainly the Land Pavilion was one of her one of her favorite stops. And I was just That's so, so excited because, you know, being able to see that kids would say, and, you know, you talk to Imagineers and people say, when Maggie Ellett says, well, I was, you know, I was creating rides in my mother's rose garden and Tony Baxter was building models and, you know, everybody has some sort of story about their childhood Interest Tom Morris, you know, as a 12 year old kid flying to Florida for the opening day of Walt Disney World, mm-hmm. <laughs> he's still discovering <laughs> people are sending him <laughs> videos of that now.
1: Yeah, it's it's amazing. <laughs> well, you know, for our uh, in one of our last podcasts, we had uh, Eddie Sato sent us uh. Audio he had recorded at the preview center on a trip to the preview center for Walt Disney World. He had, as a little kid, had taken along his tape recorder and had recorded, you know, the hostess there giving her little spiel and everything. And so oh, I think sorry. it's a running. Yeah. Uh, it's it's definitely a thing for sure. Yeah.
2: Well, and you know, I looked on. I look on social media, LinkedIn, or or other places, and I'm just astonished at how many incredibly talented people there are out there. And, you know, they you don't have to work just for Disney these days. You can be anywhere in the world creating amazing entertainment. But, you know, so much of it was sparked by a visit to the park or seeing um, a film or reading a book or, you know, something that – engaged that child at a really young age and then they put their heart into developing their talents around you know telling their own stories and i think that is really so remarkable and that we can see those you know that there's kind of a a, an opportunity to see those things online very cool absolutely
1: Well, that brings us to the end of part one of my interview with Peggy Ferris, but good news, Jeff. There's a part two already in the hopper
0: waiting, ready to go. I'm excited to hear more. You know, Peggy was there at such a time that it's hard to believe she held all these eras that, uh, you know, me and you and a lot of other people hold in such high regard as separate kind of identities of Walt Disney productions to the Walt Disney company. And, all the personalities she she really touched a lot of that history in her time at at Disney. It was just a really magical little moment in time to be there. Yes, it's
1: you know it as with several of the people we've talked to who started off very very young with the company, and you know you meet them and you you think how could how could you've worked for the company for fifty years. Uh, it's, the secret is just start very, very young. Mm-hmm. And to be able to be there on the ground before opening of Walt Disney World, to be there in the contemporary of all places, the swanky contemporary of 1971, and then to go on to the Epcot things, just, just an incredible tour of some of the things that I'm most fascinated with. So I'm incredibly grateful to peggy for her generosity and taking the time i could have delved into the most obscure (laughs) questions about any of these locations for hours yeah i mean
0: we could have definitely done a whole show on the contemporary with her because just the unique knowledge she has of that is just like a gold mine really exactly exactly i just wanted to go shop by shop you know that's right (laughs) what was it what
1: was this like what was that like So anyway, again, very thankful to her. And the best news is we've got more coming. So that's really exciting. That's
0: right. Well, if you'd like to delve deeper into these stories and any other of the episodes we do, you can always join up our Patreon. That is at patreon.com slash Progress City USA. Michael, what does somebody get if they join the Patreon these days? Well, my goodness, you get a little
1: packet of Progress City goodies, little stickers and buttons and magnets and fun things like that. And at a certain level, you get to join our monthly live stream, which is a lot of fun. Got one of those coming up soon. And we'd look at rare video, rare photos, just have a fun little time, a fun little chat uh, with all our friends there on the live stream and the best thing is it's all tax deductible in it from true. your taxes um so we, we always appreciate everybody who helps out with the show it's it's a real
0: boon to us and we thank you all It's very true. We do appreciate it. We appreciate you all listening. If you'd like to be in touch with us, you can get in touch with us by writing podcast at Progress City USA or reaching us on Twitter. Michael's at Progress City USA. I'm at Jeff G. Crawford. We love comments. and All the uh, interaction we have with you all concerning the episodes, ideas you have for more. All right, everybody. So we'll look forward to seeing you in just a few weeks with more Peggy Ferris. So long.